Okay. Uh, we, are, we have been in a series on the book of John, and we're not today, right? Not today. We're, we're going to do, do something else. I, I just started thinking and, and praying about this, and I was thinking about how we just, we just had Thanksgiving, and I was thinking about thankfulness. And I was thinking about personally in my life, when, when are the times where I struggle with being thankful? When are those times? What are the things that can trigger me, that can, can affect me, and I don't feel so thankful? And so we're going to be talking about the corrupter of thankfulness. Uh, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but it, what corrupts our thankfulness? And I put there idolatry. It's a form of idolatry that corrupts our thankfulness. And this is the time of year when we think about it. That's what got it going in my mind, because we we have Thanksgiving, and we have food, and family, and fun, and time off from work, and football and food and then more food and just as it's it's a fun time it's enjoyable and this it's a good time to reflect on things and I was thinking this past week of the things that I'm thankful for the things that I love so much people you know think even even just things that I I enjoy things that I love things that I'm thankful for and I started thinking about what's the most central what's the most important what's the most What's the one thing I can't live without? And, and not just me, but for you. Think about what do you love the most? And, and for some people, it's family. And, and some of you have had family visit you this weekend, maybe uh, for Thanksgiving. Maybe you had family members or people in your family that you haven't seen for a few years, and they came for Thanksgiving. And maybe around Thanksgiving evening, you began thinking that it would be okay if you didn't see them for a few more years. You, you understood why. Uh, this is why I haven't seen them for a few years. Maybe it's uh, your kids and the future you want for them. Maybe, maybe it's your work and your aspirations of what you're going to do with your life, all you hope to accomplish. Maybe it's a hobby, something you do for fun. Maybe it's exercise. You enjoy being physically fit. Maybe what you love the most is your spouse this person you've committed your life to and they're sitting next to you right now and here or at home and maybe you just want to lean over and say, I love you, honey. Maybe there's somebody you just met today and you find them sort of attractive. If you want to lean over and say, I love you, honey, to them too, you can do that. Not sure if it's a good idea, but when we start thinking about what we, what we treasure the most, what's most important to us, a lot of things can come to mind and there's really good things good gifts that we're thankful for, we can celebrate. But what was convicting for me was on Thursday, I was sitting there thinking about what are the things I'm really thankful for? And what was amazing was it took me, I went a little while and then I said, oh, oh yeah, and, and you, God. And I thought, how did I get down this list of ways before thinking, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thankful for the things God gives me. But what, I, what really hit me was, was being thankful for God just because he's God not because of what he does for me, just being thankful for God, loving God for who he is. And that's, that's why this, the, when we talked about love just a minute ago, it struck me. God loved us. He loves us, not for what we bring to the table. He just loves us. And we tend to love, our culture tends to define love as what do you bring to the table? You make me feel good, so man, I love you. Well, what happens when you don't make me feel good? Oh, it slipped, where has it gone, you know? It's kind of like, uh, 
I started thinking about this. There's a lot of things I'm thankful for. What do I love the most? What do I love the most? And it can be hard sometimes to go, sometimes it's not God. Things occupy my mind. I get attached to things. And that's why I titled this, The Corrupter of Thankfulness is Idolatry. I feel like that man who said to, to, to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm believing you, God, but I know there's a lot of doubt in my head, in my heart. And it's, it's funny when you think about it, you know, a while back, I, wasn't, I was sick and the doctors prescribed some medicine. They said, look, this is you take this medicine at this time every day, okay? Twice a day, at these times, stick to it. Go the whole way through, right? And I did it. I checked the times, I set alarms, I made sure I did it. Why? Because I wanted to get better and I believed the doctor. I wanted to get, get better and I believed this would make me better, so I did it. And now I have this God, he tells me how life works on this earth. He tells me what will enable me to live the life he made me for, the best life I can have. He tells me how to do that. And I don't always do it. He tells me how to become a person who is generous. He tells me how to love the unlovable. He tells me how to be patient with people who drive me crazy. He tells me how to forgive the people who hurt me. He tells me how to love my enemies. He tells me how to become a person who sacrifices. He tells me how to become a person of integrity. He tells me how to put other people first. And I struggle with those things. We struggle with those things. Why? Because we're not sure if we believe them. We're not sure if we believe God about this stuff. We're not sure how much we love him. You know, a while back, a number of years ago, we did a series on Daniel, and I loved it. It taught me, it taught me so much. And uh, the book of Daniel is really about how Daniel answers this question, who do you love the most? That's what it's about. Daniel was one of the Israelites that was captured along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were captured, taken to Babylon. They were put to work there. They faced seemingly impossible challenges. How would they respond to the king's dietary requirements? How will they interpret the king's strange dreams and visions? How will they respond to the command to worship an idol made of gold? And time after time, even when facing execution, Daniel does not compromise. He remains faithful to God. And there is a recurring phrase in the book of Daniel. We highlighted this before, but I want you to see this. It says, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Whom you serve continually. He says, Daniel, this is what I've seen about you. You serve your God. We're all playing around with this God thing. You serve him continually. We see it. We see it. And that, that, that's an amazing, it's not occasionally, it's not sporadically, it's not begrudgingly, it's the God you serve continually. It wasn't like Daniel was, was far off in some removed place like a monastery, removed from the struggles of life. He was a significant leader in Babylon. He has significant responsibilities high up in their government. He learned their language, he studied their culture, he served in their government. 
and yet he served God continually in his day-to-day life. He made it clear what mattered to him the most. In fact, the people who were plotting his downfall, they saw that. They said, this is where we got him because he serves his God unswervingly and we can catch him in that. I think it's a lot like, you know, you see this all the time in, <clears throat> in reading in books and stuff as they talk about concentric circles and they talk about where things belong on the circle. A lot of self-help books will help you with this. They'll talk about this and they'll say, where do things belong until you get to the core, the absolute number one? What's number, the number one thing? And you start with the peripheral concerns and you work your way in. You know, it's like friends and family and different things like that. And they get more and more important as they get to the middle. But when you get to the core, that's what you love the most. That's what you will serve. That's what you will serve unswervingly, continually. And everything finds its balance based on the core. And Daniel was really clear about what was there. It was his God. His God was the core. His God was the center. And that, man, that hits me. What about me? What about my life? My real life? My day-to-day life? how I live day in, day out. What, sir, what, what's at the core? What's at the core? And it's based on your choices. It's based on what you prioritize, what drives you. It could be something like relational fulfillment. It could be something like personal comfort. It can be financial security, vocational success. And those are not bad things. And they may well be deep in the circles, but do they belong in the center? Because will they sustain you and will they satisfy you in the difficult times when it matters the most? When God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, he gave them the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It was their guidebook. It was their way of life. He says, this is how you will live. This is how God is essentially saying, we will live together. At the heart of that is the 10 commandments. And at the heart of that, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we've talked about this before. I love this. The word that's translated before me, Paul, in in Hebrew, it means face-to-face. Face-to-face. When you pray, and I don't know how this works, but when you pray, you are face-to-face with God totally focused on you and what you're saying. Nothing else distracting, face-to-face. And he says, you will have no other gods face-to-face, only me, only me. And this is, this is an incredible thing. It has serious implications. First, God is saying this is an incredibly intimate relationship. Incredibly intimate. It's a face-to-face relationship. It's a, it's a radical departure from all the other gods that they would have heard or 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 exist, this God is intimate, relational, and he is interested in you, you. You shall have no other gods between us. That's why it's so hard to love the Lord your God because we oftentimes get something right in between us. Our family concerns, our financial concerns, our health, our church, getting involved in a ministry, those things, they can come between us and God if we don't keep them in their proper place. Israel, time and time again, they were doing 
their sacrifices, exactly how God asked them to do the sacrifices, but God kept, kept, kept saying to them, there's something between us. You're not worshiping me. You've lost your first love. And that's called idolatry. And so let's get practical. I want to just talk about this for a few more minutes in terms of how this affects our life. Why would God, why would God give this command? Why does God give this particular command? No other gods before me, just you and me, face to face. That's all I will accept. That's all I want. That's all I'll accept. Is God telling us he's lonely? Is he telling us he's insecure? That he desperately needs our attention? No, none of those. It has little to do with God's needs and it has everything to do with our needs. God is telling us something. He's telling us you were made for this from the very beginning. This is what you were made for, face to face with me. This is what you're made for. We're made in such a way that a personal, daily, loving relationship with God is the only thing that can truly fulfill us. It's how you're wired. There's no other way to satisfy you. There's no other way to satisfy you. I remember seeing ESPN did a retrospective. They were talking to Joe Theismann, who used to be a quarterback for, for Washington, and uh, they won a Super Bowl with him. And, and um, he was talking about that, the first Super Bowl. And, and they, they said, how do you feel about it? He says, he says, that was the greatest thing that's happened in my life. When I saw that, my first thought was, dude, you're married. You got to think about these things when you're, you got kids, man. What are you doing? He says, it's the greatest thing that happened in my life. And they said, were you satisfied? And he goes, oh, no. I wanted another one. I wanted more. I wanted more. That's it. I want more Super Bowls for Washington. Now, I feel like that's a godly goal. Super Bowls for Washington. I mean, I would, I would vote for that. But he was totally wrapped up in it. We can fall victim to the word more. More money, more pleasure, more comfort, more success, more respect. The more of these things that we get and we taste them and we feel them, the more we want more. And it's because of this. These things can be satisfying, but they're not meant to truly satisfy you. They're a momentary pleasure that is fleeting often at times. They don't last long. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. He says, I, I, I'm planning a life for you that's at a, a whole other level than what you're expecting, than what you're thinking, or what the world has for you. I made you for this. And this, we go back, you know, John, Bios and Zoe, life, just existing. He says, I don't want you to exist. I want you to live. I don't want you to just breathe and eat and take up space and use up oxygen. Because I want your life to count for something, to mean something. This is, why, this is why God gives this command. So then I ask, what happens when we don't follow this command? What, what do we do? We substitute lesser things for the greatest thing. We find our God substitutes. That's idolatry. 
placing your trust in anything other than God is idolatry. And for the most part, God's substitutes are not bad things. Prosperity is not a bad thing. Success is not a bad thing. Love is not a bad thing. Comfort, knowledge, these are gifts from God. They're supposed to be good things. But Tim, Tim Keller has a book called um, Counterfeit Gods, and he says this, idolatry is not necessarily about falling in love with bad things. It's about trying to make a good thing the ultimate thing. That's what happens. We find a good thing, and it becomes all important to us. And it takes what's most important and moves it away from the center of the circle and puts some, something else there. And these God substitutes will always let us down. They will always ultimately disappoint. It may be great for a while, but they will not last because they're not made for that. They're not made to be the ultimate thing. And that then we begin to damage ourselves and others. We ask, when we feel like, I thought about this, when our idol lets us down, we start to act selfishly because we want to soothe our disappointment. When our idol lets, lets us down, we start to act manipulatively because we're trying to get back what we want or what we think we want. When our idol lets us down, we start to act resentfully against people who might be in our way of getting what we think we deserve or need. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, idolatry is the great sin that Israel struggles with. And God rebukes it more than anything else. Not because he's angry and short-tempered. It's because he knows when you start serving God's substitutes, when we put the wrong thing in the center, everything else starts to struggle and begins to fall apart. In Isaiah 56 and 57, there's a, there's a passage. I love this passage because what's going on is God is seeing there's no justice around. Outsiders, refugees are being ostracized, not welcomed in. Um, they're, they're caring about pleasure and personal gain more than anything else. They're looking elsewhere for wisdom and meaning. They're spending money on what's not important. And it's wearing them down and they can't understand why. And God says, whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it, is it not because I have been long silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them. A mere breath will blow them away. And this is what I love about this passage because God is condemning them, condemning them, condemning them. And he does this so many times. And then he says, but there's hope. The one who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. God says, make me, the one who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy. He says, make me your refuge. Make me the center of all of these things then we can restore this relationship. But when we go our own way, our lives get disordered. Our desires get damaged. We get turned inside out. Without God at the center, God, people can become so captivated with the gods of success and prosperity that they trade their time, their integrity, their community just for a better bottom line. Without God at the center, young men and women today become so captivated with the gods of beauty and fame, they will use anything from sex to starvation to try to look the part. Without God at the center, parents can become so focused on the idol of reputation among peers that they start to care more about what other people think about their family 
than how much they love their own children. And this is not, you know, here's, here's Bob who's had it all together or something like that that's, that's, that's looking down on others. I've done that. I've become so concerned about what people think about my family that I've hurt my kids in the process. And that can happen. It can be rough sometimes. It can be tough on pastors. Because everybody thinks pastors are so good and their kids are so good. Man, I can remember going to church and telling them, straighten up right now. We're going in there. Don't you do anything. Don't talk. Don't, you know. And then, man, the car door's open and the Jesus face comes on. And everybody's happy and God's good. But the whole time, I have my arm on the shoulder of one of my sons, and I'm just squeezing. And he starts saying, okay, back off a little. And I regret that. I regret it. That's what happens when we get disordered. We suddenly, we suddenly find ourselves hurting the people we're closest to. How does that happen? And when we put those things, other things at the center, they become idols. They become things we chase. And the real thing, the real thing gets put aside and a false substitute. Because look, Splenda is not sugar. It's not sugar. (laughs) Margarine's not butter. It's not. Tofu I don't know what tofu is trying to be, so I don't know what it's not. But I've tasted it, and it is not. That's all I'm saying to me. Now, I know some people think Splenda is great. Some, I, I don't want to, but I mean, it's just we get those substitutes, and we suddenly, the real thing is not what we're dealing with and not what we care about, some cheap substitute. So brass tacks, how do we identify these idols? Buckle your seatbelt. Here we go. Because this is a time to get serious. This is time to get, for me, for you, all of us, how do we, do we identify idols in our lives, all right? First, what is it that gives me security? What is it that gives me security? Really, I find my security. Is it money? Is it a relationship? Is it being successful in your job? Whatever it is, it could be a sign of an idol. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's your idol, that's your idol, or anything like that. This is how you identify it, and these are just things that could point that way. Because if, we, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we can get sucked into these things so easily and subtly, and, and there can be times in your life, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where all of a sudden I stop and I go, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? How did I screw this up so badly? So, what is it that gives you security? Here's another one. What is it that you fear? Fear is a good clue. It's a good clue. Because if you, you know, you, you, can, have, you can fear admitting failure. Well, if you fear admitting failure, then maybe reputation is your idol. If you fear losing your money, maybe prosperity is your idol. If you fear pain or making sacrifices, maybe personal comfort is your idol. What do you fear? Third one. What part of God's character do I resist most? Now, this is one you have to think about. What what, what part of God's character or what part of Scripture do I find myself resisting? 
Because if financial security is an idol, then I will find myself trying to avoid the fact that God is generous and he's called me to be a generous person. Generosity comes hard when financial security is your idol. If moral freedom is your idol, then you'll find yourself trying to avoid the fact that God is holy and calls you to be a holy person. If personal glory is an idol, then you'll find yourself trying to avoid the fact that God is a servant and calls you to be a servant. And there's, this is as many questions as you can think of here, just thinking about these things. What part of God's character do I resist the most? Because when I resist a part of what God's character is, a part of what God tells me, there's always a reaction. When I resist that, there's always something that slides in. And I mean, this is Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, everyone always looks at that as that's all about money. It's not all about money. Okay, there's a principle there. The money part is the illustration of the principle. The principle is you can't serve two masters. It may be money. It may be a hundred different other things. It may be something else. You can't serve two. One always will trump over the other. So last question, just four. What is God supposed to do when we put these other gods before him? And he go, all through scripture, he talks about this. And God intervenes in, in, in a number of ways. One way is he just warns us. He warns us when we're drifting close to idolatry. I mean, and, and I don't, this is as much for me as it is for you, but right now, this might be a warning. Might be God saying, hey, wake up. Something's creeping in. Open your eyes. Or it might be God saying, hey, you have really, you're, you've gone off the track here. Get things straight. What's at the center? He warns us. And that God may be warning us right now, each, each of us individually in different ways. And what's interesting too, and he talks about this so much in the Old Testament, he also woos us. He also says, I love you, please come back. I love you, come back. He reminds us of who he is and how much he loves us. I mean, this morning as we sang, we were given reminders of this incredible love for God that God has for us. Lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. He loves you. He wants to wrap you in his arms. He wants to hold you close and speak face to face with you because that's the relationship that he wants to have. And so he woos you. And if that doesn't work, the next step is God's going, well, I, got, I need to remove that idol somehow. What can I do to remove that idol? He must intervene and get it out of the center. Why? Because he loves you. He's not mad in the sense of, you're so bad, I want to just bonk you. No, he's like, this is killing me. It's killing you. Get rid of it. And God may be making you think of something right now that you're realizing might have become a God substitute in some ways in your life. And he may be wooing you right now to say, please come back. Please get rid of that. I love you. And the only way we can do that is to get face to face with him. Face to face with Jesus, the God who came 
to do something about it. God didn't just say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He says, look, I'm coming down and I'm going to do something about this. He walked beside people, real people like you and me. And he worked on their God substitutes. If you think about it that way, think about through the four gospels, how Jesus worked on people who had God substitutes in their lives. And he said to them things like, go and show that you've been healed. Do the proper thing. Go and sin no more. Do the proper thing. And he worked on people who struggled with the very same thing we struggle with. And when we do that, when we focus on Jesus, when we get face to face with Jesus, when we start to, to start to spend time in his word and allow him to speak to us and to deal with our hearts, what happens? Something powerful happens. We change. We begin to realign our worship. We start to push things into their proper places. We begin to experience the joy that God says he has for us. There's so many people that are suffering under weight in their lives, being destroyed by God's substitutes that will, in the end will just totally let them down. And Jesus is saying, don't serve any other God. Go face to face with me, no one but me. And I came across this verse the other day, I was doing some reading, and I love this verse. Blessed are those who have learned, the, learned to acclaim you who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. That word acclaim means to, set, to agree with who God is, to, to, to give him his due, in a sense. To, to be able to say, this is my God. He says, those people that begin to understand who God is, begin to give him his due. He says, they will walk in the light of his presence. When we studied 1 John, we spent some time talking about what it was to walk in the light how important it was, and, and, and how freeing and joyful it is. And here, he's already teaching them that in Psalm 89. Acknowledge who I am. Give me my due, and you will walk in the light of his presence. Put God in his rightful place is another way you could translate that word acclaim. Put God in his rightful place, and you will walk in the light of his presence. And I encourage you, because what will happen in that is then, as then you will become a more thankful person. You will become more aware of what God has done in your life and what a great God he is. And you will become more aware of how much you love God because he's God, not just for the gifts he brings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for men and women in the past who placed, put you first, put you at the center, at the core. You know, you think of Deborah, and we think of, we think of, uh, of uh, David at times, even though he struggled mightily. And of Daniel, who was known for constantly serving you. And Lord, as we move into the New Testament, and we've been studying that, just seeing how you came to help us get rid of those idols and help us to learn to have a face-to-face -face relationship with the God who loves us so dearly. Lord, help us to want nothing else in our lives. Only this incredible, um, incredible relationship. And then what flows from that, a life that is full of meaning and purpose and accomplishes things that will last for eternity. God, help us to settle for nothing less. In Jesus' name, amen.